Good morning, church. There's a lot more people here, and I think the first service was a little bit louder. Good morning, church. Cool. Awesome. Uh, my name is Mitch Fierre. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And um, I'm learning that there still are people that don't quite know who I am, which is okay. We're a big church. I've only been here a couple months. And so, again, my name is Mitch Fierro. Um, I'm the pastor of Local Mission and Evangelism, Evangelism. And what that means is I'm simply trying to position our community and what it means to be living outward facing towards not just the city of Fullerton, but the communities around us. Uh, some fun facts about me is that my wife, Anna, is here. She's the funnest fact of me. Um, her and I have been married 10 years, living in the city 11 years. Um, and we have three kids, James, six, Henry, four, and that little girl, Lillian, over there, is just turned seven months. And with that being said, too, I just want to like, uh, throw this out there. I know there's like 12 extra babies in the service right now. It's okay if your baby cries. It's okay if your baby gets fussy. I got my own. I feel you. I know what that feels like. At our church plant, we did not have children's ministry, and so we had kids everywhere, and, we, and, I, and I still manage. So don't even worry about it if your kids get a little fussy. Um, so with that being said, you guys all know who I am now. You know I'm okay with kids, and you know how great my wife is. Let's go ahead and jump in to the text today. Um, Like John shared, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. But before we begin to look into where the the author is taking us in today's text, um, I I just want to spend a little bit of time looking back, reflecting on where we're coming from. Because it feels like every ser- or each service since we've been back from Easter has been pointing us up towards Jesus. You see, first we, 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 we anchored our identity in him, through him, in our faith, alongside all of those that came before us. And then that we saw, or we were reminded that, <clears throat> excuse me, that when we, are, um, when we are disciplined and then we are chastened, that this, this, this thing that happens in our life and we're corrected, that that is the evidence of, of sonship or, or, or daughterhood to, to, to Jesus or to God. And at the same time, that correction, as we're experiencing it, um, that, 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 that correction molds us and forms us into holiness, which is the fruit of his righteousness, which means that we are grow, growing into his image. And then last week that we were, we were reminded that um, through our faith, Oh, that was the last week. That was a week prior to that. Sorry. We were reminded that um, through our faith, as we are anchored in Jesus, we, we run towards him. And as we're running towards him, we're throwing aside everything um, that, that either um, entangles us or, or, or distracts us or, or, or gets in the way of us running towards Jesus. And then last week, we were reminders. We were reminded that we are invited into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as, as members of that kingdom, we are then sent out of ambassadors of that very kingdom for all of our neighbors and our communities and our families and people around us to see who we represent. As a, and I'm pretty confident that as, as, as we, we spend time in the text and even as, as I think about it and I reflect in my own life and even just kind of talking about the things that, that God's been speaking to us through his word, I begin to feel like this, this stirring of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I feel like I've, I feel the, the Spirit of God kind of nudging me outward, kind of whispering into my ear, let's go. We, 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 spend some time, we spend time anchoring ourselves in Jesus. Now let's get out and let's run in and let's do the stuff. 
And I'm confident that God's doing this in the heart of our people as well. You see, just this last week, I was having a conversation with my friend Laura in the well. And she's telling me just how encouraged she's been um, through our, our, our series in Hebrews. And she, she said specifically in, in the last couple of weeks that, that each Sunday, as her and her husband Tony have left, that they've just seen people that maybe they've never noticed before. And that they felt that they wanted to go up to these people and they wanted to introduce themselves and they wanted to thank them for spending their Sunday with us. And as she's sharing this, I'm like, yes, Laura, yes, like this is, this is the spirit of God welling up in you. This is what it looks like when we anchor ourselves in Jesus. And then that spirit begins to point us out to our community. And as she's sharing this, she's like, you know, Mitch, I'm feeling all of these things. And I'm excited to do these things, but am I, am I allowed to do that? And I'm like, yes, Laura, yes, that, that is the point. That is why we spend the time in the text. This is why we, we anchor ourselves in Jesus. And this is why we allow the Spirit to shape us and form us so that when we, forget, we begin to feel the stirring and the direction of God's Spirit, we can openly step into that, whatever it looks like for us, and live out to this call of ambassadorship. So I was like, whatever it is you need me to do, do you need me to bless you? You need me to throw some holy water on you? Whatever it is that I can do to encourage you and, and to send you out, I, I, I want to do that for you. And so for you guys, I want to encourage you the same. That is, as we've been in this, this series in Hebrews together, and as we've begun, or as we have been anchoring ourselves, anchoring in our identity in Jesus and what it means to be an ambassador of him, if the Spirit begins to point you out, step into that. And if you want to talk about that, email me, come up to me, talk to me. I'd I love to walk through that with you and help discover even what that might even look like for you. And I think it's interesting because along with that happening in the life of our church, that's exactly what's happening in the text today. That the writer of Hebrews for the last few weeks has been reminding the early church where they are anchored and where their identity is in. And here at the beginning of chapter 13, as he begins to close out the book of Hebrews, we begin to see him pivot the early church from being up only to now focusing out. And so we're going to look at the first seven chapter, or seven verses. And in those first seven verses, we're going to talk about a, a couple practical um, aspects of what it looks like and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And there's a lot to kind of cover. Um, the writer kind of spits out all, all six of these things. And so um, I, I'm going to try to make the most sense and kind of bring them all together so that they're applicable for us today. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, the writer says, let brotherly love continue. One more time, we're in Hebrews 13, chapter 1. Let brotherly love continue. Now, around the time that this letter was written, the term brotherly love was not um, commonly used outside of the context of a family. But because of the Christian influence on the West, um, for us, this has kind of become common language. See, in my preparation time, as I Googled the term brotherly love, I had to sit, search through six pages of search results before I got to the biblical definition of brotherly love. So to the original hearer, although this might be common to us now, this concept of, of loving each other, loving people that were not biologically related, but loving them as, as, a, as a blood sibling was, was still kind of new. And it was so new that the, um, the listeners needed to be reminded of this in verse 1. 
And actually prior to here, we see Jesus in the gospel of Matthew um, introduce this, this thought or this idea of brotherly love, this new definition of brotherly love for the first time. When it says in Matthew 12, verse 46 through 50, it says, while he was speaking to the people, this is Jesus speaking to the people, behold, his, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man that told him, who, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, guys, as, early, as important as it was for the early church to know how to love each other, guys, it's still just as important today. I think especially for folks like us that maybe have been walking with Jesus for a little bit, that maybe we've, we've kind of taken part in, in what it looks like and what it means to culturally be a Christian, um, especially in Southern California. And it becomes easy to begin to find our identity in, in not just Jesus, but in the things that we do as Jesus followers. And of course, the most common example of this is always the bumper sticker it's an easy way to slap it on the back of our car. It doesn't even have to be like a Jesus fish. It could be the church that we go to. It could be a Christian clothing company or the camp that our, that our kids go to in the summer. We begin to look towards these things as identifiers to our, as, as identifiers to our allegiance to Jesus. I think that made sense. And even more, more commonly, outside of stickers we, in, in the world of social media, you know, we begin to post selfies of us you know, reading our Bibles at coffee shops or drinking lattes with, with fancy latte art. Or we post inspirational um, verses with, with colorful backgrounds, and we begin to lean on these things that, that to, to the, our followers and to the world around us, when they see them, that is how they know I'm a follower of Jesus. But you guys, this, this isn't, and those aren't, a true hallmarks of Christianity. You see, guys, the way that we love each other is and should be the only or the, the major hallmark of our faith in Jesus. It's so important that Jesus reinforces this with, with the 12 at the table of the Last Supper. In John 13, Jesus gives this new commandment where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this call to let brotherly love continue is not just for the benefit of the church. It's not just a way that we support each other or we come alongside each other, which, which it, it, it very much is but by selflessly and radically and sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters in the church. It's our prayer that when the people around us, when our neighbors and when our families and when the people that we work with or the baristas that we visit at those coffee shops where we're taking the selfies, when they see the way we love each other, that they'll look at us and they'll see our relationships and they'll think, I don't know what that is, but, but I think I want that. Moving on to the next verse, like I said, there's a lot of stuff happening here, guys. Um, verse two in the first half, the, the, the writer says, now do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, when I think about this verse um, or, or, or who were strangers, 
um, I think two people come to mind. The first were, were strangers that were, were a part of the body. Uh, this could have been fellow Christians that were escaping persecution. Maybe they had given their lives to Jesus and people in their community had found out what they had done. They began to chase them out or chase them down to be imprisoned. And this could also be missionaries and preachers who, who have given their lives to disciples and are going from town to town speak, uh, speaking and, and, and preaching the gospel. So that's this, this first group of, of who the strangers may be. And then on the other hand, we have the second group. And the second group could be strangers in, in every aspect of the word. People who were completely unknown. Unlike these traveling saints that I just mentioned, this other type of stranger would have had nothing in common with their host. These were strange people having strange beliefs, beliefs coming from foreign lands. But you see, guys, to the heart of the one, which is the early church or us, to the heart of the one who is anchored in the kingdom, there is no differentiation between stranger and saint. See, their hospitality in ours is rooted in Jesus and should extend to anyone that is willing to receive it. As followers and disciples of Christ, as we meet people for the first time, as we meet people that are in need or or strangers that need a friend, we should be making it rain hospitality everywhere we go that people can can gladly accept it. But then in, in the second half of the verse, it says, for thereby, after entertaining strangers, some have entertained angels unaware. Now, it's easy to look at this second half of the verse and to think, well, I, I, I better be hospitable because I, I might be entertaining angels. So let me say what this verse is not. This verse is not bait for hospitality. How many people here have ever worked in the service industry in any way? Awesome. So the people that raise your hand, you know what I'm talking about when I use the term secret shopper. Exactly. For you guys that don't know, a secret shopper looks like me, looks like you, buys the things I would buy, buys the things you would buy, takes those things home, and then when they get home, they write a report about their experience with you, their experience in the store, and then they give it to your manager or your district manager or the corporation. And this would happen to me all the time, especially um, in the retail world. But it also happened when I worked in coffee. It happened when I worked in restaurants. And it can be completely um, honest. At this point, I don't think secret shoppers really exist. I think they're just something managers kind of just say to kind of scare you into um, not slacking off anymore, maybe getting you out of the warehouse so you actually focus and, and do your job. But it's easy in light of that, to look at this verse of entertaining angels unaware and to think, gosh, if I'm entertaining angels, I'd better be cool with with every person I come in contact with. I I better be extra hospitable because Lord forbid that actually I'm, I'm a jerk to an angel and God finds out. See, this, this, this verse can easily become a spiritual carrot dangling in front of us. And this verse, not, not, not a heart anchored in Jesus, but the thought of this verse of entertaining angels, that becomes our spiritual motivation. 
It's as if a, a, a carrot is dangling before us, keeping us moving forward. But it's important that we remember what, what Jesus says in Matthew 25. When he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or, or, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the King Jesus will answer them when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, more than angels, Jesus and our art anchored in him and our posture towards him is the only motivation that propels us, his church, towards the stranger. And then in verse three, the writer pivots again when he says, remember now those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. As the early church was being persecuted, um, many members of the body were, were being thrown into prison. They were being beaten. They were being locked up for the kingdom, for their, for their faith in Jesus. And so this verse is actually a, a call to suffer together with those brothers and sisters who were being persecuted. You see, I think in, in, in this verse is purity. If we get down to the core of what's trying to be said here, this, this verse is a, it's an empathetic call for us to feel for those who are being mistreated. Now, verse three isn't just a call for us to simply think about them or, or, or to pray for them or, 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 or just to be, be mindful of them, but th- this verse implies a, a physical remembering. And in that physical remembering, it, it means physically caring for them if we can. See, something I learned about the early church during this time is that um, as Christians were being locked up for following Jesus, the church was notorious for bribing their way into prisons. And they bribed their way into these prisons so that they might care for their friends that had been locked up. The church was so good at breaking into prisons and they were treating their friends and they were treating their their fellow brother and sister so well that those leading the prisons were, were, were beginning to become frustrated by them. So they passed a decree in the fourth century saying that if any Christian broke into a prison to care for a brother or sister, that they would suffer the same punishment as the one that they were going to care for. This did not deter the early church, though. See, guys, because this church's faith was anchored in an unshakable kingdom. And when it was anchored in an unshakable kingdom, it it gave them the courage and the confidence to show up and radically empathize with those that were in prison, suffering with their fellow saints. And now the writer pivots again when he says, when he or she says, actually, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, believe it or not, um, around the time of the early church, there were some who despised marriage. 
Um, they believe that the only way to fully be a disciple of Jesus was to live a life of purity and abstinence. Some believed this so much and were bought so into this theology that they went as far as castrating themselves in order to secure that they were living a life of purity. And so speaking on behalf of married people everywhere in the church today, I am so glad this philosophy died out with the early church. We would not have had all these wonderful families up here this morning. Now, this could have been the very reason why the writer chose to address marriage in this verse, since this was happening during the early church. But at the same time, the writer might just be saying, you know, marriage should be honored because, well, marriage is, is, is good. It's good for those who are called into it. There are obvious perks of, of marriage. Obviously, family and relationship with the spouse But I think the most honorable thing about marriage when when those who are called into it step into it, step into marriage, is that what marriage represents. You see, marriage is, is a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, between the bride and the bridegroom. And even in my own marriage, I'm constantly reminded of Christ's sacrificial love for me. There were times in my life when I had been a horrible husband. Husband, I had done completely stupid things. I have, have disrespected my wife. I had said horrible things. And in those moments when she has every right to send me outside or, or to leave to go back to visit her mom or, or to want nothing to do with me, it is in those moments when my wife shows me the most grace. It is in those moments when she physically shows me more love than I deserve to receive. And it is in those moments when I see my wife's love for me, it inspires me to love her more, to sacrificially be a better husband for her. And as as we, we, we have this marriage And as we live in community, it isn't just for us pointing each other to Jesus, but as as we interact with our neighbors, as we interact with people that we know that don't know Jesus, as they see Anna and mine's sacrificial love for each other, they don't see us as just two people that love each other, but they see two people that love each other because Jesus loved us first. And in the messiness and in the complexity and all the sin that comes out of two sinners being wed together comes beauty, comes Jesus and the gospel. In the letter half of verse four, it says, let marriage be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So yes, that's true. The bond of marriage is between a husband and a wife before God. And yes, the bed is the most intimate place for that couple. And God will judge those who defile that bond of marriage. But as I, as I thought about this, and as I thought about other times um, when, when Jesus talked about adultery, it wasn't always in re- reference to marriage or relationship with other people. In Matthew, Jesus refers to, to the people that were looking toward him, but also looking for another sign. He refers to them as an, an adulterous generation. People who didn't realize what was standing in front of them, but they were always looking for the next thing. And that next thing, that was going to be the thing that was going to catalyze them or or, or root them. 
but never focusing on what was right in front of them. And I think that that, that term adulterous generation isn't only for, for, for Jesus' time or for the early church. Guys, I think even still today, we're an extremely far-sighted generation. Constantly looking for the distance for what we may be missing out on or for what may be better or for whatever may be the next best thing. And when we constantly look out to the distance, it is impossible to focus on what is directly in front of us. And in the context of marriage, that means that every time I'm looking out I'm looking for what's next, or my heart is lusting for what could be better. I'm missing out on the best thing that's in front of me. I'm looking out, I'm missing out on my wife, not focusing on her, seeing her, and my heart becomes adulterous. Guys, what about when we do that to Jesus? What about when we become so fixated on what's the next thing that's gonna tickle my ears, or what's the next thing that's gonna inspire me spiritually? when we're constantly looking for this next thing or this next sign, like Jesus says, we, we, we miss out and, and we live into that identity of an adulterous generation. See, guys, it's only when we focus on Jesus and we set our eyes on him, like earlier we read a couple weeks ago, is when we focus on him and when we run that race. And in the context of marriage, when you run that race together, focused on him, it is only when your eyes are locked and set on him that you will be able to avoid the pitfalls and what could be an adulterous relationship. And then in verse five and six, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me preface what I'm about to say is that first by saying money is not a bad thing. I think if you're ever in a conversation of money, the person talking about money will always say that. Money is not a bad thing. Even if we look at the life of the early church, many of the things that they did required money. Whether it be sacrificially loving um, a fellow person in the church and, and maybe helping them or meeting a need. Or maybe it's extending hospitality to a stranger. It's money that allows you the resources to be hospitable. Or maybe it's, it's, it's this, this thought of, of, of marriage. That you, you need money, you need finances to build a foundation for a marriage that will ultimately become a healthy family. But here the exhortation is not so much the, um, the avoidance of money. Rather, the exhortation here is, is contentment. Not contentment in just our stuff, not just being satisfied with the things that we have. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rather, contentment with the supplier of all the stuff. And to be content with the one who is always with us. In church, we know him to be Jesus. See, true contentment is only in him. And it is only him, it is only Jesus that brings us freedom from selfish want. You see, guys, money comes and goes. The things it buys wears out and grows old. And ultimately, it just leaves us desiring more, needing more, possibly bringing us to a desperate place where we're willing to do anything um, it takes to accumulate more. 
See, guys, the love of money, the love of things creates a gluttonous vacuum of consumption in the soul of the disciple. And for the follower of Jesus, over time, that, that love of money that, that, that's, that's, that is sucking us in will ultimately replace who is on the throne of our hearts. See, when the writer here quotes, I will never leave you or forsake you, this comes from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, where God is calling Joshua into, um, into being a prophet. He's calling Joshua to be his mouthpiece to the people. And in return, when Joshua accepts this call, he is promised the continual presence of God. That continual presence of God was enough for Joshua for him to step into this identity or this role of a prophet. And guys, this is true contentment. This is what frees us from the love of money. Church, as as followers of Jesus, if, if we declare ourselves to be disciples, what else more should we desire than the continual presence of the one that spoke all things into being. And there's nothing, there's not a thing on earth that money could ever buy that could improve that simple fact. And then in verse seven, the writer pivots again when he says, now remember your leaders, those that spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So here the call by the writer is for the hearers to examine the lives of those that have led them, looking at them and and learning from how they have lived. Looking at how they lived their life and for many of them looking at how, how they died. So that when a disciple passes, he leaves two things behind. He leaves an example of how to live And he leaves an inspiration for the next generation to imitate. And yesterday, alongside many of you, I was volunteering at at, at Love Fullerton. Anybody here at Love Fullerton this weekend? Oh, guys. No, no. There's always next year, okay? So there's going to be more claps next year, right? Um. So yesterday at Love Fullerton, um, that's, if you don't know what that is, it's a citywide serve day where we all volunteer and just to really love, um, love on our city by, through acts of kindness. And so the thing that, that I had signed up for was the beautification of the Juanita Cook Trail. And so I'm like, I like the Juanita Cook Trail. I walk there, I love my kids a lot. I, I mountain bike through there. Um, I've been known to jog once <laughs> through there. And so like, oh, I'll, I'll beautify this. And really, when I, when, I, when I signed up for it, I had really no idea what I was getting myself into. See, I think with the, the creative team at OC United, what they did with these titles is like, well, we want people to sign up for this. We're not really going to call it what it is. And I signed up to what I thought was beautifying, which really was three hours of pulling weeds in the hot, hot sun. It's okay. I love my city. I got to meet a lot of great people. I got to meet some great people here from our church, and I, I do not regret it. Although my muscles might. I've, I've used muscles in my arms that I hadn't used in a very, very long time. But yesterday, as I was pulling weeds in the trail, I, I began to think about this verse. I began to think about its implications for my own life. 
And as I was pulling these weeds, I was reminded of my great-grandfather. Um, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish, and I think my mom called her grandfather Bolito, so I didn't know there was another word for great-grandfather, and so I just called him Bolito too. Um, and so my, my great-grandfather, my Bolito, lived in the house behind me. And he was a quiet man. He didn't speak a lot of English. Um, he, I, I just knew a few things about him. I knew that he was born and raised in Texas. I knew that, that he fought in the war and he gave the use of one of his legs for our country. And I knew that he loved above anything else, the luchador. And then every week or every month, I think you guys can correct me on this, when the TV guide would come in, you guys know what TV guide is, right? All right, cool, because the first service was all over that. They, um, <laughs> don't tell them I said that. <laughs> so when the TV guide would come in, he would give it to my mom with a highlighter and she would go through the TV guide and she would highlight all the spaces or all the times when wrestling was on. He was a simple man. And after coming back from the war and hurting his leg, there wasn't a lot he could do. Actually, he couldn't even drive. Uh, I think my grandfather, my grandpa, um, his son found him an old golf cart and kind of converted his golf cart into a means of transportation to him. And, I, and when I was growing in Pomona, I would often see his little cart putting down the street. So my, grandpa, my great-grandfather would, would take this golf cart and he would attach a trailer to it and he would, just, he would do yards. It was something that kept him busy. It was something that gave him a little money. And my, grandfather was a great, my great-grandfather was a great gardener. And although we didn't communicate a lot because of the language barrier, I remember one of the few things he ever said to me. And he would say, Mitch, you, when you're big, you're going to work with me. And it always stuck with me. And so I thought as a five, six-year-old being called to work with the grown-up, I better start getting myself ready for it. So I began to do some yard work around the house. I began to, to pull some weeds and I, I, I began to uh, attempt to mow the lawn on my own. And oftentimes what would happen is that my great-grandfather would see me at the corner of his eye and he would walk up to me and he would fix my hands on the rake, showing me how to hold it properly. Or he would see me desperately trying to use a shovel for the first time. He'd walk up to me and with his good leg, show me how to push down on the shovel to truly dig dirt or earth out of the dirt. And as I'm sitting there and I'm pulling weeds and I'm remembering how to hold a rake, and, and it's not because I had this great relationship with my, with my great-grandfather. It's because he models to me simple things that I was able to carry for the rest of my life. And I think this is what the writer's talking about here. When he talks about looking towards our leaders, learning from them, modeling ourselves after them and their faith. And then as I was at wanting to cook trail and I was still thinking over this, I, in the corner of my eye, I see my own son, James, who unknowingly got himself into the same situation I did when we showed up to pull weeds. And I see him aimlessly kind of dragging a rake behind him. And I was able to walk up to my son and I was able to put his hands on the rake and I was able to show him how my great-grandfather showed me how to hold a rake. And then it dawned on me that this verse where it talks about leaders, that it isn't just for the professional Christians. And I think it's easy for us to do that in the West. It's easy for us to kind of cross our arms and lean back and, and, and to look at who we believe to be the, our, our leaders and just be like, that's reserved for those that get a paycheck. But that's not at all what the writer is talking about here. He's talking about looking at and modeling our lives after those that model Jesus's. 
And then as we do that and we make those traits ours and we make those healthy disciplines ours, we then are given the opportunity to model it to those coming up behind us. You see, guys, and, and I think this, this is, is, is what's of value here. Because it's easy to look at all of those different things that we talked about, whether it be brotherly love, whether it be hospitality, whether it be empathy or, 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 or honoring marriage and relationship. They, when we look at those things, possibly maybe those are the earmarks, maybe those are the attributes that we're looking in, in those that, that we want to follow, or those that we want to call our leaders. Because I can guarantee, church, that there are people here today, that there are people in this room that have followed those people, that have followed leaders in, in, in your congregation, or maybe even in this congregation, and you've been hurt, and you've been let down, and you've been disappointed, and where you would have every opportunity to leave and to say, you know what, I, I'm done with this Christian thing. These people are all hypocrites. Here we are reading these things in Scripture, and they don't even begin to model this. But church, may we remember that the only way we can identify these things in people, the only way we can identify these things in our own lives is if we first are anchored in Jesus. And it is our anchoring in him that allows us to see the anchoring in him in other people. And so my, my, my challenge to you is that as, as, as you're following people, as, as you're, you're declaring people as leaders, as you're, you're vulnerably coming alongside people that you believe are, are, are bringing you into the presence of Jesus, the question I want to ask you first, are you first anchored in him? Because when you anchor yourself in a person, when you anchor yourself in earthly relationship, you're, you're, you're bound to be heard. Because why? The only one that satisfies, the only one that brings hope, the only one that brings life is Jesus. So let me pray for you. Father, as you begin to point us out to our community, as you begin to point us towards our neighbors, God, as you begin to point us towards people in this church, Lord, may we just take the time to self-reflect and to first seek you in our lives first. God, we, may we be a church that when the world on the outside looks in and they see the way that we love each other, they see our hospitality, they see our marriages, they see our empathy, that they don't just see compassionate people, but that they see people anchored in you. So Jesus, continue to stir us by your spirit. Catalyze our hearts and send us out as your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.